Maybe you're tired. Maybe you've had a long week. Maybe it's been busy. Maybe who knows what sort of things have been going on. But it's great that we can all come here. We can find some peace, some, some comfort uh, in the peace of Christ as we gather together and celebrate together on who he is and what he has done for us. And hopefully that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we rest in what Christ has done. We're continuing our series through the Apostles' Creed as we're going kind of line by line or statement by statement, just looking at what do we believe as a church, what do we believe as Christians, what unites us together, what makes us be able to say um, and stand up and say this is what we believe and we believe it because of the, the Bible and the Word of God tells us so. And so today we're going to be talking about the beginning of Jesus and his ministry as he was brought into this world. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do that. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can gather as your church. Thank you for this church, this body that knows you and follows you and seeks to make your, your name and your son's name known through this community. Lord, we pray for this time as we worship together by sitting under your word that we can grasp it, we can know it, we can apply it, that we can be changed because of it that we can know who you are and respond with all of who we are because you have saved us through your Son. Lord, we pray for this time that you bring the Word of God, your Word, to life in our hearts and our minds so that we can follow you all of our days. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes there are hard belief stories that you hear, right? Stories that just defy expectation. They stump the mind. They seem illogical. Maybe you had a friend tell you a story and your first response was, nah, that couldn't be. I don't believe that. But these hard-to-believe hard to stories, they're out there and we hear them a lot. There's even a whole company that's made its whole basis of its existence on these stories. You probably heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not, right? There's museums everywhere. If you've been up to Branson, you can see it right there on the main drive. And it's, it's a museum, it's a company that specializes in these Hard-to-believe stories that defy expectations seem illogical, but people are drawn into, and they question what they claim to say, but they want to know more about it. This franchise has museums across the country. They even have a TV show that was running for a while. You might remember it, starring Dean Kane, TV Superman, right? Maybe just me? I remember it. <laughs> but it, all these stories, and people were drawn in and fascinated by them. Why? Because we're fascinated by those hard-to-believe stories. We're fascinated by these stories that are true, but yet seem on the surface to be so not true. And the Bible is filled with such stories. Stories that people heard them out of context, they're like, man, that can't be in there. You believe that? That seems to defy everything I know about the world. And when we come to who Jesus is, how he starts his human life is one of those hard-to-believe stories. When we come to be get up to the Apostles' Creed and we see it saying, Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It seems like one of those hard-to-believe stories. It seems like an illogic, illogical statement because we know babies are not born to virgins because we know that is not how the natural world operates and it's hard to grasp 
And so we can wonder why when people sit down to articulate the Christian faith, why would they choose to put that statement in there? If it's hard to come to grips with, why would they fight that battle and put that in there? Couldn't they have just left that up on the shelf, maybe take it down during Christmas time, give it a, a quaint idea? But no, they put it there as the beginning of who Jesus is. We have to know how he came into this world. But it's hard to wrestle with. It's hard to wrestle with because we like to take statements and we kind of consider them in isolation. Rather, rather than seeing this as being part of the whole testimony of the Bible and part of the whole testimony of what we know of who Jesus is in his life, we, people look at that and they consider this in isolation by itself. But when you consider stuff in isolation, we lose all of the context and we can get confused pretty easily. It's like if you didn't know what a bicycle was and yet found a bicycle chain, you might wonder what it does. Is this a, very, a piece of uncomfortable jewelry? Is it a mid, you know, medieval torture device? What is this? But when you look at it in context, seeing it on a bike, where it transfers the, po- transfers the power of the pedals to the wheel, you see, oh, that's its purpose. That's why it makes sense. And very much so when we consider the virgin birth and how Jesus came into being here in his human life, we see it in context and we say, oh, it has implications that are far-reaching, it's important, and we must stand on the biblical evidence. And so when we go to the Bible, we see this expressed very clearly in both of the nativity or the birth passages of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at both of those today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew first, Matthew 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, when it talks about the birth of Jesus. And then we'll look about how Luke talks about the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been, uh, had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to, his, to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But Matthew's not alone in this testimony. We can read in uh, the Gospel of Luke about how this happens. And so in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, this is how the, the Luke talks about Jesus being born. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's Christmas in October, apparently. Because most likely, we usually just read these passages, if, if, if not in our normal reading, come Christmas time, right? Because that is what we celebrate, Jesus being born. And this is telling us how he, came, how he came to be. But we have to ask, what do these passages tell us? Why does the creed state how Jesus came to be in this world? And why does the Bible, the two Gospels of Matthew and Luke, make a point to articulate that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary? Well, I think it's this, that Jesus in the womb is as important as Jesus on the cross. That we have to understand how Jesus came to be to actually understand why does his death on the cross matter. We have to understand who he is, which comes from how he came into this world, to understand why we should give our lives to him and follow him and proclaim him as the Lord, the God, the Son of God, the living God. We have to understand who he is and how he came to to be, to understand the significance of his whole life and ministry. Because his birth and how he was conceived by the Holy Spirit sets the stage for the rest of what follows. That we have to understand the the meaning of how he was brought to being to understand the significance of the cross. Jesus in the womb is as important as Jesus on the cross. Because we have to consider the whole totality of of who he is. So who is Jesus, and how was he brought about? How did, was he born? Well, the creed starts off with says, Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it says that because that's the testimony of Scripture, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. When we go back to Matthew, we see that point blank. It says that twice. It says that at the beginning. When, um, when Joseph, the narrator, Matthew, is talking about how Joseph founds out that Mary, finds out that Mary's pregnant, that she was with a child from the Holy Spirit. This is the testimony of Matthew. And then Joseph, when he dreams, the angel tells him that that was wishing Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It makes it clear, the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus, this baby, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so the narrator just states that's fact. doesn't tell us how or what's the implication. The angel just tells Joseph it's fact. It happened. But Luke goes a little further in his narrative. That when we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary hears this, this pronouncement from the angel that she's going to have birth, and she's going to give birth to the son, and she's going to name him Jesus, and he's going to save people from their sins. He's going to sit on 
David's throne, she hears this and she asks that most logical question, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel replies to her, it says the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Holy Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so we also see now Luke is, is, is recording this instance that gives us more explanation for why this is important. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it says, therefore, very significant word, he now will be called holy, the Son of God. And so we see, when we look at the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, is an implication for who he is. He's called holy. He's called the Son of God. And so we can pull out this fact that when we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is we believe the testimony of Scripture that Jesus was not just a normal human, but Jesus was truly human and truly God that we talked about last week. That he is the God-man. That in himself, all of divinity dwell as well as all of true humanity dwelled that this is who jesus is and it has implications for our salvation that has implications for his ministry that has implications for how we can know who he is i love how wayne grudem who is a, a theology a professor and author he wrote like this he says god in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full divinity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. This is the idea that now we see both here, that he was born of a, of a normal woman. He was human, but yet he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we can say he was also divine. He was God, and that has implications for who he is. That this has implications for the fact that Jesus actually was born without sin. The testimony of Scripture is that all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God and is in sin. It's, by, it's in our nature as well as in our actions. But yet here comes Jesus, and how was he not born in that same condition? Well, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 can say it like this. When I get there, I can say it like this, that for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we see that fact that Jesus had no sin so that God now could put our sin upon him and Jesus can give us his righteousness. That the very fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, as the Bible tells us, means he can save us. As that perfect lamb without blemish, as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This account that Jesus was brought about by these supernatural means also starts the whole uniqueness of Jesus that we see in the redemptive story. That if you can't buy how he came into the world, how will you understand and accept the miracles he worked? And finally, the greatest miracle, the resurrection, when he comes back to life and then ascends to be with the Father. That's almost like the gateway statement that we believe not, not just his life was 
filled with miraculous things. Not just how he came back from the dead was miraculous, but even how he came to be was a work of God. Now, God's redemption plan is filled with that miraculous means. And it's the uniqueness of Jesus in his life. I like how R.C. Sproul, who, is a, who was a uh, Christian a pastor and author, he said, the Christian faith stands or falls with the uniqueness of Christ. That who we believe him, who is totally unique, no one else is like him, who we believe him to be is actually what we base our whole faith on. And this being born of the Virgin Mary, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, is part of that uniqueness. It starts that unique story of who he is. But this understanding, this testimony of the Bible that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it helps us combat or maybe think rightly, let's say that, about who Jesus is. Now, some people get off track and they start thinking of Jesus differently. So there's people who say, well, he probably was just born like any other person. He was just a normal human being. But yet God then chose him at a certain point in his life to be his son, to be divine. And, and, and so he, they point to his baptism and say, maybe that's when really we see Jesus becoming who we know him to be as fully God and fully human. And that's called adoptionism. Makes sense, right? He adopts him at this certain point. But that falls in the face of what the Scripture teaches very clearly. That it wasn't at some distant point that Jesus became who he was in, for his ministry, but it's right at the beginning when he comes to be. It's announced by angels. God declares it so that this is my son who's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. This also combats those ideas that some people look at Jesus and say, well, he was not truly human. He's just God kind of masquerading as human, right? He's God. He's not truly human. He just, he just maybe looked like human to kind of speak to humanity, but he's, just, he's really still fully God without any um, humanity with him. But that flies in the face of the rest of the testimony of the Scripture that talks about Jesus hungering, talks about Jesus thirsting, how he wept, how he slept, and how he, he suffered, that Jesus was truly human, and we can only come to grips with that and understand it when we understand how he was born, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and so we understand that he can truly represent us before the Father, as well as being God himself to save us. Jesus in the womb is as important as Jesus on the cross. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. If you read that account in Luke again, it seems like Luke is bending over backwards to make the point, this woman was a virgin. He calls her virgin three times. The Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mary, Mary, who was a virgin. This woman was a virgin. Luke wanted to make that clear. This is the emphasis of the, of the, of the Bible, that Mary was a virgin. She had not known man in that sense, and so this child was not just some other child. Matthew takes a different track, emphasizing she's a virgin, but then is quoting Isaiah 17, 14. And so when you read Matthew, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now Matthew is pointing back to this virgin and saying, not only was she a virgin, but this actually fulfills a prophecy of who 
of, 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 that was given to us in the Word of God about who the Messiah would be, who we're expecting him to be. It fulfills this, this prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. What was great about this statement is that Jesus' birth did not just fulfill one prophecy. It didn't just fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, but Jesus' birth actually was the fulfillment, the completion of a pattern that we see from the very beginning, this pattern that's woven through Scripture, this pattern that God was going to save and going to move and extend his plan through the birth of miracle children. And we see a hint right at the beginning when Adam and Eve sin and God is cursing the snake and he curses man and woman and he speaks then in that that cursing of the snake with a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will come an offspring from Eve who will, will, who will um, crush the head of the serpent. And this promise people were expecting and waiting for. And so here comes Isaac from Sarah who could not have kids. From Sarah who her time to have kids was long past. And all of a sudden, now here comes this promised child, a miracle child that they place their hopes and dreams in. And that pattern is repeated when Esau and Jacob are born after 20 years of barrenness for Rachel. Here comes miracle children. And we see that again and again, this pattern woven through Scripture that God moves his plan and moves his story further through the birth of miracle children. We see that come the book of Judges and how uh, Samson is born to a, a, a woman with, uh, from an a angel visits her and promises her the son is going to save the nation of Israel. We see that in Hannah as she's praying at the, um, in the, at the tabernacle, praying for a child even though she could not have a child. And God gives her Samuel who's going to be the first prophet who's going to now anoint the kings of Israel. We see that promise woven into the promise to David that there's going to be a son, a descendant from him, that's going to sit on his throne forever. Again and again, we see God moving his story forward through the promise of these of, of, of miracle kids. Even right before Jesus, John the Baptist was a promise given to Elizabeth who was barren and in her old age. Again, a promised child delivered. And these all came about, even miraculous how they were conceived, but they came about through normal human means as well. But now here comes Jesus and his uniqueness, capping off this trend, fulfilling this pattern, not just a miracle child where you don't expect a child, but one conceived by the Holy Spirit, now born from a woman who never has known a man. And it points to the uniqueness of Jesus, and it points how he fulfills and completes the whole pattern of Scripture. That what we believe about Jesus in the womb is important of who we know him to be on the cross. Ben Myers, who's a, who's a Christian author, he puts it like this. That is how it goes in the Old Testament. At the great turning points of history, we find a woman, pregnant, and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. And it's the same at the biggest turning point in history. When all of the world turned when Jesus was brought into this world to save his people. But people object to this idea that Mary was a virgin. Because it seems illogical. It seems far-fledged. It seems 
something quaint from a begone time when maybe people didn't understand how biology worked, which is absurd. I think everyone has to understand how biology works. But they have these objections. And people go back and say, well, Matthew quotes um, Isaiah 7.14, and, well, they get that wrong. And Isaiah got that wrong. And And the Christian church gets that whole quote wrong. And they say, well, Isaiah is not really talking about a virgin there. It's just talking about a young woman. That a young woman would have a child and it would save uh, Israel. And they say, we can tell that because they use the, Isaiah uses the Hebrew word, word Alma, which means just young woman. And on the surface face, like, well, did the apostles get that wrong? Did Matthew and Luke and all the other people believe that he's fulfilling Isaiah 7.14? Did they get that wrong? And we have to say, well, not so fast. Because we're dealing with those issues of translation, which can be tricky, and we can trust how the Bible has been translated for us. And yeah, we can agree, you're right. Alma is not the technical word for virgin in the Hebrew language. There's another one. Isaiah could have used um, what's it, uh, Bethuel, which is the technical word for virgin, but he didn't. Well, why? Well, there's got other reason for that, but again, we've got to look. Maybe an English ex- example will help clarify why different words are used. And so you can think, take three English words, young woman, virgin, and then maiden. You can look at young woman, and with, yeah, all, this, all this word is doing, or this phrase, is describing a person of a typical sex and age, right? And then you can go virgin, that's technical, that's, that's actually telling us something about someone's purity, sexual purity, that they haven't had sex before, a virgin. But then we go to maiden, and that's more of an Archaic word, maybe. We don't use it in our common um, language that much. But it carries, it's a young woman that we would say carries a strong implication of virginity to it. And we take that example when we look back at how the Hebrew language is used in Isaiah 7.14, and we see probably this word Alma most closely corresponds to maiden. And that, yeah, it's not the technical word for virgin, but it's this idea that this is a young woman with really strong implications that she has not known a man. And so we see that these objections based on words really doesn't plan out because that's just not how they probably would use it at that time. But other people object and say, well, this prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 was not talking about some distant event. It's just talking about Isaiah's own kid that was going to be born. And we can say, yeah, that's true. But when we look again and again through the Old Testament, we see the fact that prophecies are, are fulfilled doubly in Christ, that they might have a, a close fulfillment that, comes, that fulfills a little bit of this prophecy, but they really point to complete and full fulfillment later in Christ, which is what we would say that does. But no matter how you deal with Isaiah 7.14 and other prophecies, there is no question that the gospel writers... The apostles took Mary to be a virgin and took that as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And that's where they stood because they knew this was a truth. Because they knew how we believe and what we believe about Jesus and how he came into this world. Not just that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, but the fact that he is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he is the fulfillment of this pattern of the Old Testament, that he is the the son of the living God, that he is the expected and awaited Messiah that they were hoping for and longing for. They knew that was important and how he came in this world was important as well and understanding that and grasping that. 
because it matters on how we view Jesus. Jesus in the womb is as important as Jesus on the cross. Which leaves us with the question, well, what about Mary? Because there is something about Mary. What do we do with her? Well, there's two errors that the Christian church falls into. One error is to look upon Mary and, and venerate her as something more than just a simple human servant of God. And we can see different traditions have gone those routes where maybe statues have been erected to Mary and, and prayers given to Mary and, and people are trained to look upon her um, in some special way beyond what the Bible would tell us to do that. But then there's the other error, which I think, well, I fall into, and most Protestants fall into, is we are scared of going that way, and so we say, ah, there's nothing about Mary. And we forget her, and we ignore her, and we don't recognize that great story and how, how great her testimony is of someone who was confronted with this hard service for God, and yet here I am, I'm a faithful servant, I will do what you have told me is going to happen, and walked faithfully in it. That we can look upon Mary and actually learn on how to follow God because of who she is. R.C. Sproul said this again, and I think he just put it so well. He says, imagine the difficulties of raising her other children alongside a half-brother who might disappear to debate theology with the temple leaders. This was her child, and at the same time her Savior and Lord. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we get hints that Mary was in the wings, supporting, fearing, praying, and perhaps witnessing to her unbelieving sons. She's available and faithful to the cross and beyond, never demanding the spotlight. Always the obedient servant is idolatry to pray to Mary, but it is highly appropriate to pray to be like her in spirit. And so what do we do with Mary? We can recognize that she was used greatly by God. As a normal human being put into this impossible situation where people would whisper about her, where she would be maligned, where she would have to watch her own son suffer and die for his people. And yet she stayed true and followed her Lord. And we can all learn from that. So what do we do with this fact? This aspect of who Jesus is, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary. Well, I think when we look at our life, and we look at the hardships we go through, we look at the temptations we face, we look at this, the trouble that surrounds us, and we can admit that life is hard, it sometimes is not easy, things don't go our way, and we wonder where God is in the midst of this, is in that instance that the light of the incarnation, the light of the fact that Jesus came in and experienced life as one of us, that God stepped down and lived as one of us, walked in our shoes, literally, that it shines brightness of who Jesus is. That we know we don't have a God that is distant from us and hasn't experienced what we have. But we have a God who loved us so much, who he experienced life and the temptations and the ups and the downs as one of us. 
And that gives us confidence and that gives us heart. And it, no, it, it should fill us with um, rejoicing on who this God is that we worship. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, it puts it this way. It says, talking about Jesus as our high priest, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the hope and the help in time of need. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with us. He knows our weaknesses, and yet he doesn't turn away. He knows our failings. When he stood perfectly, we failed, and yet he holds his arms out to us and brings us to the Father. He knows how we don't live up, and yet he lived up perfectly, and he satisfies all the demands of justice. This is our high priest who brings us back to God, who lived as one of us and died for us, which means that we can have confidence. So he says, right, we can have confidence that even though we're sinners, we, this God knows we're sinners and still loves us and still lives perfectly for us, that we can trust that God, that Jesus is going to save us and bring us to God in the end. And then finally, knowing that Jesus knows us personally and experientially is the biggest anxiety killer of them all. For when we get caught up thinking we have to live up and measure up or we have to achieve or we somehow have to do something to make God smile upon us, this fact that Jesus lived as one of us, knows our temptations, knows how we fail, knows how we don't measure up, and yet still lived for us, to die for us, to save us, should destroy all anxiety we might have about how we can know God. For Jesus did it for us, and he did it perfectly. So what does this mean for us? That we can know our Savior and how he saves. That started even before he was born and how he was brought about, which gives credence to how he would live and minister and then save us on his cross. Because Jesus in the womb is as important as Jesus on the cross. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that we can stand firmly on this ground that your gospels give us. That historically the church has confessed that Jesus came about through miraculous means that Jesus was brought about by your power, that this is not just a normal human birth, this is not just something uh, that we've seen before in Scripture, but this is com- the completion of your pattern. This is the fulfillment of your prophecy. This is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, come down to save us as human and as God. So Lord, let us know this truth But let us not keep it as head knowledge or something that we might say we believe, but let us actually see how that impacts our life and impacts our heart. That this truth wraps our heart in the the glorious reality 
that you know us, that you love us, that you have experienced what we have, that you simplify us, that when we weep, you weep, that when we rejoice, you can rejoice with us, that you're bringing us through this meandering way that we look at called life, but you're bringing us through to an end because you are who you said you are. Let's hold fast to that confession that we believe about who you are and how you're working in our lives, Lord. Resting in this fact that Jesus is unique and because he is, he can save us from ourselves, from the enemy, and from even death itself. Lord, we love you.